0: This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with Let Him Ask God, Temptation's Path, The Implanted Word, No Partiality, and The Royal Law. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. God. Oh.
1: Of five of the hymn, the gifts Christ freely gives. Speaking there about the Lord's Supper, beneath the bread and wine is food from Calvary. The body and the blood remove our every sin. Welcome back to Issues, etc. Coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time for part two of our series on the Divine Service. Dr. Arthur Just joins us. He's seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Naples, Florida professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, welcome back.
2: Good to be with you again, Todd, to talk about the worship of our church. You said in
1: the first part of our conversation that the historic liturgy is rooted in the Jewish synagogue service. Take us into those connections.
2: The Jewish synagogue service was really a service of word, prayer, and song. So in many ways, it was very much like our, what we would call matins or vespers, or one of our prayer services. But the way they read scripture in the synagogue was formative for the way Christians did. And as I mentioned last week, they would begin with the most important books. They would do a reading from one of the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, of course, as well. And then they would read from the prophets and they would pick a prophet that would serve as a commentary on the Pentateuch, on the Torah. And then if necessary or if possible or if helpful, they would read from the historical books. And then what they would do between each reading, so after the reading from the Torah, they would take a time out, so to speak, a time of really meditation and contemplation, and they would sing a psalm, and the theme of that psalm would kind of point to the the reading, and so you'd have a chance to kind of reflect on that. And the same would be true after the prophets. They would also sing another psalm. And what happens in the synagogue liturgy is you kind of use that principle of interpretation that scripture interprets scripture. Now, what Christians did was they took that kind of same sense of order, but they just, they kind of flipped it around. So instead of starting with the most important, they ended with the most important, the gospel. So they would lead into the gospel. So they would have an Old Testament reading, then a psalm, then an epistle, and then a psalm with the Alleluia, because this is now the voice of Jesus, and then the gospel reading. So really, the way we read Scripture comes right out of the synagogue liturgy, with you know obviously a slight adaptation. And that I think that's the important thing to recognize about Christian worship is that there is a foundation, there's a a sense of being taken out of Jewish worship, yet changed somewhat because of the Christ event, that now it's Christian worship, not Jewish worship. So it's not exactly the same, but it has now been adapted to the fact that we are in the post-Pentecost period. You talk about Jesus'
1: table fellowship. What is it, and how does it as we find it there in the Gospels, shape the historic liturgy?
2: Well, the table fellowship of Jesus was not anything he invented. It's something that he inherited. And what's so interesting about this, Todd, is that the table fellowship for the Jews and the table fellowship for the Hellenistic world, the the pagan world, so to speak, was not really that much different, except obviously the content was different. But what table fellowship meant in the time of Jesus, and in many ways, you could trace this back into the Old Testament, that one of the most fundamental ways in which God showed his intimate relationship with people was at a table, for example, the Passover, or even with the sacrifices that you see in the Old Testament, when they would sacrifice something, they would always eat it afterwards, so there was always a meal afterwards. But with Jesus, and these would be the Jewish meals, really the Passover being sort of the foundation of it, there would always be teaching first that sort of created a sense of unity and fellowship within the community that was gathered at the table. And then the eating of the meal, which was in a way the culmination or the expression of that Kind of fellowship, unity, intimacy that was created through the teaching. Now, this is true of the Greek symposium meals as well. Today in our culture, when we go to a banquet, we always have an after dinner speaker after the banquet. Well, in the ancient world, they had the banquet speaker first. And that was true of the Greek symposium meals. Now, if you look at the Passover liturgy, it's really quite interesting because there's a lot of teaching that goes on at the beginning of it and this is where that notion of teaching before eating comes from and this is especially in connection with the food after the initial prayers the table would be set with the food and then the food becomes sort of the the way of teaching what the meaning of this event is so for example why are the herbs bitter because of the bitterness of our journey Why is the uh, bread unleavened? Because of the haste of our journey. And why is there a lamb? Because of the, the blood on the doorposts, you know, the lamb of God who is coming, who's going to take away the sin of the world kind of thing. And then after the interpretation of the food, and there were other things they did with the food at the table, they would tell the story of the Exodus. And that was where every Passover, the the teaching would go on and and when it was over they would have another prayer and then they would break bread and that would start the meal so you can really see built into the passover seder they call it liturgy there is teaching before eating now what's interesting is every jewish family on what would be our friday night but the sabbath started after sundown on friday so it would be their sabbath So every Sabbath evening, they would have a Seder, a meal. And it wouldn't be as formal, say, or it wouldn't have, obviously, the foods that the Passover Seder would have, but it would have the same order. So they would start with a prayer over the day, a prayer over the, the fact that it's the Sabbath. And then they would go to the prayer over the breaking of the bread and everything. But if you had a special person there like Jesus, a teacher, before the breaking of the bread, you would ask him to teach. And that's where Jesus did a lot of his teaching. And then they would have, of course, a, a you know just a regular Sabbath Seder. But the same rhythm is there, teaching and then eating. And what you see in the, actually the Sabbath evening Seder, a lot of people don't realize it, is that the structure of that Seder is really kind of based on the Passover Seder. So that every Friday night, by means of the structure of the meal and the fact that you would have this sort of formal liturgical meal with the family, like the Passover was a family meal, you would remember the Passover. So every Friday, they would remember that great event in the history of Israel that was celebrated every year in the spring. And it's, it's not unlike back in the old days, how the Roman Catholics would you know, not eat meat on Friday. Because why? Because Friday was the day Jesus died, and this was a way of remembering it. And maybe not everybody recalls that's why they didn't eat meat on Friday, but it was to remember Good Friday every Friday night. So there's there's this incredible kind of character to the to the way in which Jesus has table fellowship with his people. Now, the difference in Jesus' table fellowship and it's, in many ways it's what makes all the difference in the world, is the fact that he is present there at the table. So you have the creator, say during his earthly ministry when he's eating with Levi the tax collector or Zacchaeus, he's there in the flesh sitting at the table with them. On the night in which he's betrayed at the last supper in the upper room, He's at the table with them like he was before, but now he's present sacramentally. Uh, He's present there in, with, and under the, the bread and wine with his very body and blood. And then after he rose from the dead at Emmaus, you know, you have Jesus present now in his resurrected flesh, but he's also there in the breaking of the bread. And, and I think you can see, and Luke is really brilliant in the way in which he started the three-day sequence, you know, the passion and resurrection of Jesus. He starts with the Last Supper, which happens after sundown on really what is our Thursday, but is their Friday. So it starts on the beginning of Good Friday. Uh, people don't realize that, but for the Jews... The Last Supper is really at the beginning of Good Friday. And then at the end of Easter Sunday, before the sun goes down, he ends with another meal. And in both cases, you have Jesus present at the table, one before his passion and one after his resurrection, and yet he's there sacramentally. And of course, the table fellowship now of of Christians after Pentecost is just a sacramental presence. But the same components are there, teaching, word, sacrament, and the real bodily presence of Jesus. So the table fellowship of Jesus becomes sort of fundamental for the what become the structures of the liturgy of the church. Dr. Arthur Justice, is our guest.
1: We are in part two of our series on the divine service. When we come back, We'll talk about the historic liturgy being rooted in Jesus' inauguration of the new creation during his ministry. What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org.
0: Where is God's mission? God's mission is everywhere. Yes, it's far away, but it's also very near. It's as near as your congregation and school, your neighborhood, your family and friends, even as near as your home. Wherever you are, God's mission is in that place. Through his mission, Christ is bringing forgiveness, life and salvation to people everywhere, even here, right where you are. God's mission here. Learn more at lcms.org slash national mission.
3: The faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. You're listening to Issues Etc. If only we could see and hear what takes place in the divine service. The holy God's voice pours out eternal gifts. Sinners are washed in cleansing water that saves them from death. The Son of God gives his body and blood for us, the food of immortality. The church on earth blends her voice with angels and saints in glory to praise our God. These wondrous mysteries take place at Our Savior Lutheran Church in Stevensville, Montana, 184 Pine Hollow Road. Call 406-777-5625 or find us on Facebook.
0: Do you long for a church that celebrates the divine service with reverence and joy, but without the unbiblical baggage imposed by a supposedly infallible hierarchy? Do you long for a church that confesses a divinely instituted office of the holy ministry for the giving of the Lord's gifts to his people and yet values and lifts high the priesthood of all believers? welcome to the Lutheran Church. We're what you've been looking for. Find an historic, authentic church near you on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org.
1: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the historic liturgy with Dr. Arthur Just of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Just... How is the historic liturgy rooted in what you call Jesus' inauguration of the new creation during his ministry?
2: Yeah, it's such an important part of understanding how our historic liturgy does flow out of what Jesus did. I th- You have to go to the first sermon that he preaches in Luke's Gospel, which happens to be in his hometown of Nazareth. And it's there that he, for the really in, in Luke, the first time he he preaches what I would call the the new creation on the basis of Isaiah sixty one, and and there he is in the synagogue, and as a visiting rabbi, he would be invited to uh, read the scriptures and then interpret it, and so he chooses Isaiah sixty one, and he also quotes a little bit of Isaiah 58 as well. But when he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, there are two components to that, that he's he's talking about, the reason why he came. One is preaching, and it's interesting that three of the verbs there, three of the infinitives, have to do with preaching. That's the number one thing that he is. Jesus is a preacher slash teacher, and for Jesus, they amount to the same thing. So he comes to announce something, and his proclamation is, is such that, because he is the creator who has come to his creation, his word, like the word in Genesis, that out of nothing brings about the creation, his word has the power to do what it says. In other words, his word has the power to create reality. And so when he preaches or when he teaches and you know, he says things like, to the sick, be healed, or to the demons, be cast out, or to the dead, be raised up, or to sinners, your sins are forgiven, that word has the power to do what it says. So people who are sick are healed, demons flee away, sins are forgiven. And those miracles are part and parcel of what he comes to do. He comes as a teacher and as a performer of miracles. He fills a pattern from the Old Testament of the prophets who themselves were teachers, preachers, and miracle workers. And those miracles are, are so important. I mean, I, I know growing up, you know, we were taught not to really believe the miracles, to doubt the miracles, that we live in an enlightened age. Nobody believes in miracles anymore, but they are so important because I mean they they clearly testify that Jesus is the Son of God. But also they testify that already now the Creator has returned to His creation to set it free from its bondage. That's what the new creation is. Jesus deals with four kinds of bondage. I've already mentioned them. But there's sickness, demon possession, sin, and death. And because of the fall of sin, we've all been infected with this virus. The creation has been infected with this virus and we are in bondage to these things. And what Jesus does by means of his word, and then his, for example, his healing touch, he sets people free. Now, it's my claim that that word conforms to the liturgy of the word, and that the new miracles today are the sacraments. Because if you go with the definition that a miracle at the time of Jesus was the creator, come to his creation to set it free. That's what Jesus does in the in the sacraments. In holy baptism, the creator, Jesus, is present there by means of water, word, and spirit to set us free from our bondage to Satan, bring us into the, the kingdom of God, to bring us out of the darkness of Satan into the light of Christ, to bring us out of bondage our slavery into that freedom that we have in Jesus. He makes us eternal beings. I mean, that's a miracle. And then in the Lord's Supper, in with and under bread and wine, the Creator comes to us with his very body and blood. It's a miracle. And what does he do? He sets us free by forgiving us our sins, by releasing us from the bondage of our sins. So that, that. Prophetic pattern going back to the Old Testament that John the Baptist is part of. You know, he preaches a baptism of repentance into the forgiveness of sins, and his miracle is the actual baptism itself. And then Jesus comes and does the same thing. And what does Jesus do with the 12? And in Luke, Luke 10, the 70, he sends them out to preach the kingdom and to heal. So, in a sense, he sends them out to do word and sacrament ministry. And so they continue this prophetic pattern of Jesus. And when, you know, at Emmaus, for example, I mean, that's the the kind of the culminating story. Jesus teaches on the road. He opens up the scriptures to them. He reveals how the entire Old Testament is Christological. And their hearts burn, but they don't see him yet. They have burning hearts. But then he opens their eyes in the breaking of the bread, in the sacrament. And there you can see word, the teaching on the road, and sacrament, and the last line of the Emmaus story that they did in exegesis of the things on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And I, in, in, my, in my thesis, my doctoral thesis, and in the commentary on Luke, I claim that those are the two structures of the liturgy, part of Jesus' table fellowship, but part of this ministry of the new creation. And so what we do today in our liturgy is we have table fellowship with God through the real presence of Jesus Christ in word and sacrament. And we continue this miracle of the the new creation being present by hearing this performative word preached by our pastors where sins are forgiven, And then the the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which is that new miracle of the new creation. And so we now, as pastors, continue the pattern of the prophets, John the Baptist, Jesus, the apostles, and then the 70. And we're going to continue that until Jesus comes again. So there are all these images, and actually, they're even more than images. They're these realities in the ministry of Jesus that form the foundation for our, what we call the historic liturgy, the liturgy of word and sacrament. How is the destruction of the temple predicted by
1: Jesus a liturgical Rubicon of sorts for the church?
2: Well, it, it demonstrates that all the sacrificial system, everything that they did in the temple that pointed to the blood of the lamb, that once that blood is shed on Calvary and the temple curtain is torn asunder, that for all intents and purposes, there really is no reason anymore for the sacrificial system in the temple. And it, in a sense, it shows the transition from the blood of bulls and goats that points to the Messiah to the very blood of Jesus now that is the the fulfillment of all that blood and is now the foundation for New Testament worship. Now the entire book of Hebrews is in a sense about this very reality. And when it says in Hebrews, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, it shows us that now the shedding of blood that it's referring to is the shedding of the blood of the Messiah on the cross of Calvary. And that that proclamation of the gospel where Hears in their ears have Christ present for them, and then the very eating and drinking of the body and blood of Christ, that this is now the, the liturgical structures of the divine service, the historic liturgy, or what some people call the great tradition.
1: It's part two of our series on the divine service with Dr. Arthur Jess, professor of New Testament At Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. We'll talk about the liturgical purpose of the Old Testament Psalms in the temple and the Jewish synagogue next.
0: week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with Let Him Ask God, Temptation's Path, The Implanted Word, No Partiality, and The Royal Law. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at the thewordendoors.org or your favorite podcast provider
1: how did god address the gentile nations through the prophet isaiah what is god's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation and how does isaiah's divine message apply to us today find out in the new concordia commentary on isaiah chapters 13 through 27. learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling concordia publishing house 1-800-325-3040 the Issues, etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27.
2: Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press. Saving Western civilization one student at a time.
3: Theology for blue collar, white collar, and clerical collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Death for millions of years? This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit the Creation Museum in Northern Kentucky. This week we're seeing that creation and evolution don't mix. And here's a big reason why. According to evolution, death has always been around. As long as there's been life, there's been death. Actually, it's only because of millions of years of death that we evolved. You can't separate evolution and death. But the Bible teaches that God created a perfect world and that death is the punishment for sin. Adam and Eve sinned against God and brought death into creation. When Christians add evolution into the Bible, they're adding millions of years of death and disease before sin. Evolution and the Bible absolutely contradict
0: each other. Explore the history in God's Word when you visit our world-class creation museum in Northern Kentucky. Plan your visit at AnswersRadio.com.
1: Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the Divine Service with Dr. Arthur Just. Dr. Just, what was the liturgical purpose of the Old Testament Psalms in the temple and the Jewish synagogue?
2: Well, they provided the hymn book for the Jews, and they provided some of the themes that you will see, for example, for each day. There were Psalms that were associated in the temple, for example, with each day of the week. For example, on Sunday it was Psalm 24, Monday Psalm 48, Tuesday Psalm 82, et cetera. And so there would be sort of these themes that would be defining of the day. We mentioned already in the synagogue liturgy how the Psalms would be sung between the lessons, but they were also sung at other times where there were parts of the Psalms that were sung oftentimes in conjunction with a uh, what we would call like a hymn text or a combination of another part of the scriptures like the sanctus which is isaiah 6 and psalm 118 so that they provided sort of the backbone for the the singing of the praise of god because of the presence of god and one of the the things that i've always loved about the Jewish use of the Psalms is that they were always sung. You can see that oftentimes at the beginning of the Psalm where it says to the choir master. Now, why did you sing the Psalms? Why did you chant them? Well, I mean, there were lots of reasons, but I think the most important one, the one that would have been kind of highlighted by anybody who was asked this question in the Old Testament is that you always sing in the presence of God. Whenever God is present, it's always an occasion for joy and singing. And oftentimes you will see that joy and that singing being sort of the, the thing that ties everything that goes on in both the temple and the synagogue. Now the temple was, was a little bit more chaotic because there was all this movement and these sacrifices and priests going here and there. But you know, if you look at the the instruments in the temple and the and being part of the, I mean, uh, one of the great things that a Levitical priest aspired to, at the time of Jesus, he had to be thirty years old before he could be invited to sing in the choir in the temple, and they they would sing during the the morning sacrifices at at nine in the morning, the third hour, where they'd go into the the holy place to do the incense offering and the and, and it would be the liturgical choir that would stand there between the, the, where the priests are and the, where the people were praying, and they would sing. And that was a great honor. And there would be instruments. You know, you could be a, a musician or a singer. And then, of course, in the afternoon, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the ninth hour, there would be atonement sacrifices again. Now, here's an interesting thing. Those choirs accompanied these morning and evening sacrifices at the very time where Jesus was nailed to the tree at 9 a.m. and then at three in the afternoon when he died. So that the singing of Psalms sort of anticipated these moments. And of course, for the for the church, the time of those hours of crucifixion are in a way, times of mourning, but also, you know, there's a certain kind of joy mixed inside there because without Jesus being sacrificed, there would be no salvation. So, you know, like we have, a, you know, in our hymn books, we have our liturgies in the front, and then we have our hymns in the back. The whole Psalter was the hymn book of the Jews and they, they use it extensively whenever they would gather together in the presence of god remember as i said earlier for the jews god was always present in the temple and wherever his word was read so they would have believed that god was present in the synagogue in the reading of scripture how did the psalms shape the worship life of the church in the divine service well we did take over between our lessons the singing of the psalms so we, we have those little embedded Psalms there. And, and I will say here at, at Grace Lutheran in uh, Naples, Florida, we always have a Psalm after the Old Testament lesson and either the choir sings it or the cantor sings it, but it's a pretty extensive Psalm and it's a wonderful kind of opportunity to reflect on what, what's going on in the lessons. But whenever there was movement in the church, for example, in the entrance rite, once the churches got large enough that you had to, you know, move people into the church and up into the altar, the pastors and all who would be serving, as people would move, they would sing psalms. And they they would sing them in such a way that it was very rhythmic, so that it would be kind of a verse or two, and then an antiphon, and then a verse or two, and then an antiphon, and that the choir would do the, the singing of the verses and then the people would they would learn these antiphons and they would sing and so there would be this rhythmic back and forth between choir and people and it, it created an incredible sense of unity rhythm always creates unity and when you do it long enough and sometimes they would do this for 15 minutes even a half hour and then of course they would do this also before the setting of the table before the Lord's Supper. They'd be bringing in the bread and the wine, and they'd be singing psalms as they came in. And then, you know, after a while, certain psalms were designated for certain points, or when there's a church here, certain psalms were more important than others. And then, of course, when they distributed the sacrament, they would sing psalms. So psalms in the Christian church early on were sung extensively. We have a, a kind of a glimpse of that, for example, where one of the, the favorite Psalms that we sing is Psalm 51, the offertory before the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's just an example of how certain Psalms get associated with certain times. But the, the Psalter was the original hymn book for Christians. Then they begin to write their own hymns, and you begin to see that. And it was slow but i mean they would more and more they would write hymns that would replace the psalter or be in addition to the psalter but throughout the divine service the psalms were sung then of course in the evening and morning prayer psalms were crucial as part of the canticles and then later on of course we begin to see canticles like in the morning you'd sing the benedictus in the evening the magnificat things like that. But these are also biblical hymns, both of which, of course, come out of the first chapter of Luke's gospel.
1: Tell us about the daily offices.
2: Well, the daily offices were prayer services, and they were prayer services that were centered in the reading of the Word of God. And so the thing that kind of emphasized the the reason why we're gathering together is to hear the word of God and then to respond to it in praise. And you know, the the, the Christians, like the Jews, were so used to choosing psalms that complemented the readings. The Psalter was were the hymns that you would sing in response to the readings that you would hear. And so Psalms become sort of fundamental to And oftentimes they're done to get into the service, a psalm or a canticle, and then to reflect on the reading of the scriptures, and then at the end to kind of close the liturgy by singing psalms of praise. And you can see, I mean, you you go into any hymnal today and you'll see that there are psalms that are associated with morning and evening. There are psalms for Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, and oftentimes In my own private devotions, I don't do this all the time, but I will actually use the psalms that are designated in the hymnal as part of the reading of scripture and the songs of praise that I use in order to reflect on the readings that I've done. Oftentimes, when you use devotional books like Treasury of Daily Prayer, these psalms have already been chosen for you. But I think it's important to see, again, to just repeat that. The principle here is to use the scripture to interpret itself. And the Psalms are part of that. And the Psalms, because they're rhythmic, they're poetical, they're to be sung, they have a a character of being more contemplative. They're given to meditation or to just kind of thoughtful reflection on what it is that we're hearing from god in his word
1: we're talking with dr arthur just of concordia theological seminary fort wayne indiana in our series on the divine service how do christians view time we'll get into that next
0: You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. This month marks the 50th anniversary of the walkout of faculty and staff from the Concordia Seminary St. Louis campus in 1974. If you've ever wondered about Seminex or the walkout and what they were all about, now's your chance to learn more. Pick up the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. You can purchase that at CPH. Visit cph.org slash witness or learn more at our website, witness.lsms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.
3: Sacramental. Historical. Liturgical. You're listening to Issues Etc.
0: For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at siestakeyrentalgenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858.
2: Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com.
1: Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're walking through the historic liturgy in our series on the divine service with Dr. Arthur Jess. We're basing this series on Dr. Just's book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. This book is a tremendous historical resource as well as a theological resource and a perfect mixture of the two. You can find out more on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or call Concordia Publishing House one 800 325 asks for heaven on earth, the gifts of Christ in the divine service. Dr. Just discussing the daily offices kind of brings us to the bigger picture of how Christians view time.
2: Yeah, it, it's such an interesting question. And I think we oftentimes don't realize how there is a shift in the way in which God wants us now to worship him in terms of time. The Jews were so set in the pattern of, of worshiping on the seventh day, on the Sabbath day. And and of course, it, it comes right out of Genesis that God created the world in seven days and he rested on the seventh. And of course, Luther fully understands that that's where we're to read and hear God's word. And it's a, a time for us to come together as Christians to hear the word of God. That's what Remember the Sabbath Day and Keep It Holy is all about. But there is something now that changes with the resurrection of Jesus on the first day of what we might call the second week. That when you're counting days and Jesus, he dies on Good Friday, which is in a sense, the end of that sixth day in which there is no evening. When the darkness falls on Good Friday, that's sort of the end of that sixth day. And then Jesus, of course, takes his Sabbath rest in the tomb kind of bringing the Sabbath and its meaning for the Jews to an end, because on the first day of the week, which if you're counting is the eighth day, the eternal day, he rises from the dead to show us now that this is the day in which we are to worship. Now, Luther had a wonderful commentary on this when he was talking about the circumcision of John. I have a a citation of it in the commentary in connection with the circumcision of John at the end of of Luke chapter one, but he Luther talks about the eighth day as the eternal day in which there are no more days counted, and I think that's important to remember that when once Christ rises from the dead, we are in eternity. We really don't mark time the way we used to because the eternal one has come he has given up his life he's risen from the dead and and so we now live in this eternal existence even though the reality of our day-to-day life is that we are still on a 24-hour clock and we have the days of the week etc what's a great illustration of this is at the end of Luke's gospel and, and I had to puzzle this out when I was working on Luke 24 Luke is one of the most precise, of the evangelists in marking time. And five there are five time references to the first day of the week, you know, or the third day in the Emmaus story. Five times it's referred to. So we really know what day it is. And it's at the end of that day when he opens their eyes in the breaking of the bread. What's so fascinating is that it says that Jesus returned in that hour. So this is right at the end of the day of resurrection, the first day of the week, or the third day, if you're counting one, two, three. So in that hour, he returns, the disciples, excuse me, return to Jerusalem and recount what happened. And then after that, in the the rest of Luke 24, the rest of the gospel, there are no more time references. And you're kind of like sitting back and saying, what, there are all these time references before, and now they stop. And it looks as if when he meets them in the upper room, and he, he eats broiled fish in front of them, or when he, he gives them his last teaching about you know, his passion resurrection and, and how it's gonna go on now in the preaching of the church, or even the ascension, that all looks as if it's on the first day of the week. But it's not, obviously, because in Acts it says the ascension is 40 days later. So what's Luke doing there? Luke is telling us that once the first day of the week ends, the day of the resurrection, the eighth day, and bread is broken and eyes are opened, there's no reason now to calibrate time. We are in the eternal day, and we now live in that day until he comes again in glory. And that's how Christians understood the rhythm of their life. It was from Sunday to Sunday. Sunday was always the eighth day. This was the breaking in of eternity and that was the big day for them they didn't have historical days until after constantine 300 years later they had the pascha they would have epiphany perhaps maybe even pentecost but the pascha was really the main one but sunday was the big day and that was the day that was so important for them and it it was a kind of an eighth day theology like circumcision on the eighth day or eight people who were on the ark which was the reconstitution of humanity or the fact that the number 8 is is significant for christians in the the eight sides of the baptismal font as we mentioned before but then you have kind of this this gradual seeping in of history and the life of christ and we get the church year where we're we're beginning to develop seasons and specific feast days and we follow the life of Christ with you know, Advent and Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, and then after Pentecost, the entire Pentecost season. But all of that is later. And so you have this blending of kind of eternal time with historical time. And we still live in that. I think recently we've been more sort of captive to the historical time, but more and more now, People are recognize how important Sunday, the eighth day, is for their worship. What was Jesus'
1: Sabbath theology?
2: Well, his Sabbath theology is that the reason for the Sabbath is to bring about this new creation. And when Jesus, the creator, comes to his creation, that's why he heals on the Sabbath, because he is in a sense, demonstrating even on the Sabbath, which is a day of rest, that really what the Sabbath is looking to is that eternal rest where we are eternally healed, where we are eternally resting in the peace and the the presence of God, and that he has come to inaugurate that. And he does it by demonstrating it and setting people free on the Sabbath. So. There's this wonderful passage from John, my father is working and I am working still. And they're doing this on the Sabbath, that that statement is made in connection with criticism of Jesus that he is working on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying to them, the work of the Sabbath is to bring about this new creation that I have come to bring. And that that new creation will be released, so to speak, into the world when i rise from the dead on the third day and i show people in my hands and in my side and in my feet that i have conquered death with my death that i have brought in this new creation by dying and rising again for the life of the world is this why in
1: jesus ministry the sabbath is such an enormous subject usually raised by his critics that he does not properly observe it is that part of the reason
2: yeah i do i think so i think i think jesus understands that he has come to in a sense redraw the boundaries of all the the laws that the jews observed in terms of himself and i mean that includes like the purity laws you know he's now the the pure one the holiness laws you know, there's the holy of holies, but he's now the holy one of God. And even like the Sabbath laws, yeah, the Sabbath laws were to look to that moment when the one who would bring in the eternal rest, that sabbatismo that it says in, in Hebrews, that, that rest in, that is for eternity. Jesus brings all these things in, and, and in a sense, interprets all these laws, ceremonial laws, the purity laws, the even the kinship laws. You know, who is the family of God? It's not by blood now, it's by faith, faith in Jesus. What's the new family of God? It's those who believe in Jesus, the church. In a sense, he, he shows that all these laws have now come to their end in him. And that's a very true of the Sabbath, maybe most true of the Sabbath, because time is so important to us And now he's saying, I want you to think of time as the inbreaking of eternity, and that eternity is now what defines time. And you're going to find that eternity when you gather together on the eighth day around my eternal presence, where my word is proclaimed and my, my sacraments are celebrated.
1: We have just a minute or two And we can get into the particulars of the church here in our next conversation, but if someone asks, what is the church here, how
2: would you respond to that in a minute or so? Well, I would say the church here is the way in which we follow the life of Christ. And what we do is we follow his his descent from heaven into the world by means of the womb of the Virgin Mary, and then follow him all the way to Jerusalem through a cross, down where he's buried in the earth like a seed. And then we watch him rise on the third day. And then, of course, on the 40th, where he ascends back into heaven. And so sort of the Christological part of the church here is the life of Christ in that descent into the world and ascent back into heaven. And then the Pentecost season is simply watching how the the harvest is ripening and and it's growing green, which is why green is the color of Pentecost. And we see how the, the church now is, is reaching the point where it will be ready for the judgment. So it's, it's the time of Jesus and the time of the church, and that, those are the two essential seasons of the church here. Dr. Arthur Just is seasonal pastor at Grace Lutheran Church
1: in Naples, Florida, professor of New Testament at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the two-volume Concordia Commentary on Luke and the book Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Just, thank you. My
2: pleasure. It's always wonderful to be with you.
1: Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss a history of Lent with Dr. John Bambaro. We'll conclude our series with Dr. Paul Robby, author of our Book of the Month for February, the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah chapters 13 through 27. Christ is still present for us in his word and sacraments. He has moved us from the temple and into his word for us, present for the forgiveness of sins. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc.
3: Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program.
1: Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's Small Catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at org.
2: College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, CPSPrep.com.
0: This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible Study and Sunday School at 9.30 a.m. as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you.